Chapter forty seven, part two of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Chapter forty seven, Ecclesiastical Discord, part two. The prize was not unworthy of his ambition. At a distance from the court, and at the head of an immense capital, the patriarch, as he was now styled, of Alexandria, had gradually usurped the state and authority of a civil magistrate. The public and private charities of the city were blindly obeyed by his numerous and fanatic parabolani, familiarized in their daily office with scenes of death, and the prefects of Egypt were awed or provoked by the temporal power of these Christian pontiffs. Ardent in the prosecution of heresy, Kirill auspiciously opened his reign by oppressing the Novatians, the most innocent and harmless of the sectaries. The interdiction of their religious worship appeared in his eyes a just and meritorious act, and he confiscated their holy vessels without apprehending the guilt of sacrilege. The toleration, and even the privileges of the Jews, who had multiplied to the number of forty thousand, were secured by the laws of the Caesars and Ptolemies, and a long prescription of seven hundred years since the foundation of Alexandria. Without any legal sentence, without any royal mandate, the patriarch, at the dawn of the day, led a seditious multitude to the attack of the synagogues. Unarmed and unprepared, the Jews were incapable of resistance. Their houses of prayer were leveled with the ground, and the Episcopal warrior, after rewarding his troops with the plunder of their goods, expelled from the city the remnant of the unbelieving nation. Perhaps he might plead the insolence of their prosperity and their deadly hatred of the Christians, whose blood they had recently shed in a malicious or accidental tumult. Such crimes would have deserved the animadversion of the magistrate, but in this promiscuous outrage the innocent were confounded with the guilty, and Alexandria was impoverished by the loss of a wealthy and industrious colony. The zeal of Kirill exposed him to the penalties of the Julian law, but in a feeble government and a superstitious age he was secure of impunity and even of praise. Orestes complained, but his just complaints were too quickly forgotten by the ministers of Theodosius, and too deeply remembered by a priest who affected to pardon, and continued to hate, the prefect of Egypt. As he passed through the streets, his chariot was assaulted by a band of five hundred of the Nitrian monks, his guards fled from the wild beasts of the desert. His protestations that he was a Christian and a Catholic were answered by a volley of stones, and the face of Orestes was covered with blood. The loyal citizens of Alexandria hastened to his rescue. He instantly satisfied his justice and revenge against the monk by whose hand he had been wounded, and Ammonius expired under the rod of the lictor. At the command of Kirill, his body was raised from the ground, and transported in solemn procession to the cathedral. The name of Ammonius was changed to that of Thamasius the Wonderful. His tomb was decorated with the trophies of martyrdom, and the patriarch ascended the pulpit to celebrate the magnanimity of an assassin and a rebel. Such honors might incite the faithful to combat and die under the banners of the saint, and he soon prompted or accepted the sacrifice of a virgin, who professed the religion of the Greeks and cultivated the friendship of Orestes. Hypatia, the daughter of Theon the mathematician, was initiated in her father's studies. Her learned comments have elucidated the geometry of Apollonius and Diophantus, and she publicly taught, both at Athens and Alexandria, the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. In the bloom of beauty, and in the maturity of wisdom, the modest maid refused her lovers and instructed her disciples. 
the persons most illustrious for their rank or merit were impatient to visit the female philosopher, and Kirill beheld, with a jealous eye, the gorgeous train of horses and slaves who crowded the door of her academy. A rumour was spread among the Christians that the daughter of Theon was the only obstacle to the reconciliation of the prefect and the archbishop, and that obstacle was speedily removed. On a fatal day, in the holy season of Lent, Hypatia was torn from her chariot, stripped naked, dragged to the church, and inhumanly butchered by the hands of Peter the Reader, and a troop of savage and merciless fanatics. Her flesh was scraped from her bones with sharp sister-shells, and her quivering limbs were delivered to the flames. The just progress of inquiry and punishment was stopped by seasonal gifts, but the murder of Hypatia has imprinted an indelible stain on the character and religion of Kirill of Alexandria. Superstition, perhaps, would more gently expiate the blood of a virgin than the banishment of a saint, and Kirill had accompanied his uncle to the iniquitous synod of the oak. When the memory of Chrysostom was restored and consecrated, the nephew of Theophilus, at the head of a dying faction, still maintained the justice of his sentence. Nor was it till after a tedious delay and an obstinate resistance that he yielded to the consent of the Catholic world. His enmity to the Byzantine pontiffs was a sense of interest, not a sally of passion. He envied their fortunate station in the sunshine of the imperial court, and he dreaded their upstart ambition, which oppressed the metropolitans of Europe and Asia, invaded the provinces of Antioch and Alexandria, and measured their diocese by the limits of the empire. The long moderation of Atticus, the mild usurper of the throne of Chrysostom, suspended the animosities of the eastern patriarchs, but Kirill was at length awakened by the exaltation of a rival more worthy of his esteem and hatred. After the short and troubled reign of Sicinius, bishop of Constantinople, the factions of the clergy and people were appeased by the choice of the emperor, who, on this occasion, consulted the voice of fame, and invited the merit of a stranger. Nestorius, native of Germanicia and a monk of Antioch, was recommended by the austerity of his life and the eloquence of his sermons. But the first homily which he preached before the devout Theodosius betrayed the acrimony and impatience of his zeal. "'Give me, O Caesar!' he exclaimed. "'Give me the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you in exchange the kingdom of heaven. Exterminate with me the heretics, and with you I will exterminate the Persians.' On the fifth day, as if the treaty had already been signed, the patriarch of Constantinople discovered, surprised, and attacked a secret conventicle of the Arians. They preferred death to submission. The flames that were kindled by their despair soon spread to the neighboring houses, and the triumph of Nestorius was clouded by the name of incendiary. On either side of the Hellespont, his episcopal vigor imposed a rigid formulary of faith and discipline. A chronological error concerning the festival of Easter was punished as an offense against the church and state. Lydia and Caria, Sardis and Miletus, were purified with the blood of the obstinate Quartodecimans, and the edict of the emperor, or rather of the patriarch, enumerates three and twenty degrees and denominations in the guilt and punishment of heresy. But the sword of persecution which Nestorius so furiously wielded was soon turned against his own breast. Religion was the pretense, but in the judgment of a contemporary saint, ambition was the genuine motive of episcopal warfare. In the Syrian school, Nestorius had been taught to abhor the confusion of the two natures, and nicely to discriminate the humanity of his master Christ from the divinity of the Lord Jesus. The Blessed Virgin he revered as the Mother of Christ, but his ears were offended with the rash and recent title of Mother of God, which had been insensibly adopted since the origin of the Arian controversy. 
From the pulpit of Constantinople, a friend of the patriarch, and afterwards the patriarch himself, repeatedly preached against the use or the abuse of a word unknown to the apostles, unauthorized by the church, and which could only tend to alarm the timorous, to mislead the simple, to amuse the profane, and to justify, by a seeming resemblance, the old genealogy of Olympus. In his calmer moments Nestorius confessed that it might be tolerated or excused by the union of the two natures, and the communication of their idioms. But he was exasperated, by contradiction, to disclaim the worship of a newborn and infant deity, to draw his inadequate similes from the conjugal or civil partnerships of life, and to describe the manhood of Christ as the robe, the instrument, the tabernacle of his godhead. At these blasphemous sounds the pillars of the sanctuary were shaken. The unsuccessful competitors of Nestorius indulged their pious or personal resentment. The Byzantine clergy was secretly displeased with the intrusion of a stranger. Whatever is superstitious or absurd might claim the protection of the monks, and the people were interested in the glory of their virgin patroness. The sermons of the archbishop and the service of the altar were disturbed by seditious clamor. His authority and doctrine were renounced by separate congregations. Every wind scattered round the empire the leaves of controversy— and the voice of the combatants on a sonorous theatre re-echoed in the cells of Palestine and Egypt. It was the duty of Kirill to enlighten the zeal and ignorance of his innumerable monks. In the school of Alexandria he had imbibed and professed the incarnation of one nature, and the successor of Athanasius consulted his pride and ambition when he rose in arms against another Arius, more formidable and more guilty, on the second throne of the hierarchy. After a short correspondence, in which the rival prelates disguised their hatred in the hollow language of respect and charity, the Patriarch of Alexandria denounced to the prince and people, to the east and to the west, the damnable errors of the Byzantine pontiff. From the east, more especially from Antioch, he obtained the ambiguous counsels of toleration and silence, which were addressed to both parties while they favored the cause of Nestorius. But the Vatican received with open arms the messengers of Egypt— the vanity of Celestine was flattered by the appeal, and the partial version of a monk decided the faith of the Pope, who with his Latin clergy was ignorant of the language, the arts, and the theology of the Greeks. At the head of an Italian synod, Celestine weighed the merits of the cause, approved the creed of Kirill, condemned the sentiments and person of Nestorius, degraded the heretic from his episcopal dignity, allowed a respite of ten days for recantation and penance, and delegated to his enemy the execution of this rash and illegal sentence. But the Patriarch of Alexandria, while he darted the thunders of a god, exposed the errors and passions of a mortal, and his twelve anathemas still torture the orthodox slaves who adore the memory of a saint without forfeiting their allegiance to the Synod of Chalcedon. These bold assertions are indelibly tinged with the colors of the Apollinarian heresy, but the serious, and perhaps the sincere, professions of Nestorius have satisfied the wiser and less partial theologians of the present times. Yet neither the emperor nor the primate of the East were disposed to obey the mandate of an Italian priest, and a synod of the Catholic, or rather of the Greek church, was unanimously demanded as the sole remedy that could appease or decide this ecclesiastical quarrel. Ephesus, on all sides accessible by sea and land, was chosen for the place, the festival of Pentecost for the day of the meeting. A writ of summons was dispatched to each metropolitan, and a guard was stationed to protect and confine the fathers till they should settle the mysteries of heaven and the faith of the earth. Nestorius appeared not as a criminal but as a judge. He depended on the weight rather than the number of his prelates, and his sturdy slaves from the bath of Zoixippus were armed for every service of injury or defense. 
But his adversary Kirill was more powerful in the weapons both of the flesh and of the spirit. Disobedient to the letter, or at least to the meaning of the royal summons, he was attended by fifty Egyptian bishops, who expected from their patriarch's nod the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He had contracted an intimate alliance with Memnon, bishop of Ephesus. The despotic primate of Asia disposed of the ready suckers of thirty or forty episcopal votes. A crowd of peasants, the slaves of the church, was poured into the city to support with blows and clamors a metaphysical argument, and the people zealously asserted the honor of the virgin whose body reposed within the walls of Ephesus. The fleet which had transported Carol from Alexandria was laden with the riches of Egypt, and he disembarked a numerous body of mariners, slaves, and fanatics, enlisted with blind obedience under the banner of St. Mark and the Mother of God. The fathers and even the guards of the council were awed by this martial array. The adversaries of Carol and Mary were insulted in the streets or threatened in their houses. His eloquence and liberality made a daily increase in the number of his adherents, and the Egyptians soon computed that he might command the attendance and the voices of two hundred bishops. But the author of the Twelve Anathemas foresaw and dreaded the opposition of John of Antioch, who, with a small but respectable train of metropolitans and divines, was advancing by slow journeys from the distant capital of the East. Impatient of a delay, which he stigmatized as voluntary and culpable, Kirill announced the opening of the Synod sixteen days after the festival of Pentecost. Nestorius, who depended on the near approach of his eastern friends, persisted, like his predecessor Chrysostom, to disclaim the jurisdiction and to disobey the summons of his enemies. They hastened his trial, and his accuser presided in the seat of judgment. Sixty-eight bishops, twenty-two of metropolitan rank, defended his cause by a modest and temperate protest. They were excluded from the councils of their brethren. Candidian, in the emperor's name, requested a delay of four days. The profane magistrate was driven with outrage and insult from the assembly of the saints. The whole of this momentous transaction was crowded into the compass of a summer's day. The bishops delivered their separate opinions, but the uniformity of style reveals the influence or the hand of a master who has been accused of corrupting the public evidence of their acts and subscriptions. Without a dissenting voice, they recognized in the epistles of Carol the Nicene Creed and the doctrine of the fathers but the partial extracts from the letters and homilies of Nestorius were interrupted by curses and anathemas, and the heretic was degraded from his episcopal and ecclesiastical dignity. The sentence, maliciously inscribed to the new Judas, was affixed and proclaimed in the streets of Ephesus. The weary prelates, as they issued from the church of the Mother of God, were saluted as her champions, and her victory was celebrated by the illuminations, the songs, and the tumult of the night." On the fifth day, the triumph was clouded by the arrival and indignation of the eastern bishops. In a chamber of the inn, before he had wiped the dust from his shoes, John of Antioch gave audience to Candidian, the imperial minister, who related his ineffectual efforts to prevent or to annul the hasty violence of the Egyptian. With equal haste and violence, the Oriental Synod of fifty bishops degraded Kirill and Memnon from their episcopal honors, condemned in the Twelve Anathemas the purest venom of the Apollinarian heresy, and described the Alexandrian primate as a monster, born and educated for the destruction of the church. His throne was distant and inaccessible, but they instantly resolved to bestow on the flock of Ephesus the blessing of a faithful shepherd. By the vigilance of Memnon, the churches were shut against them, and a strong garrison was thrown into the cathedral. The troops, under the command of Candidian, advanced to the assault. The outguards were routed and put to the sword, but the place was impregnable. The besiegers retired, their retreat was pursued by a vigorous sally, 
they lost their horses, and many of their soldiers were dangerously wounded with clubs and stones. Ephesus, the city of the Virgin, was defiled with rage and clamor, with sedition and blood. The rival synods darted anathemas and excommunications from their spiritual engines, and the court of Theodosius was perplexed by the adverse and contradictory narratives of the Syrian and Egyptian factions. During a busy period of three months, the emperor tried every method, except the most effectual means of indifference and contempt, to reconcile this theological quarrel. He attempted to remove or intimidate the leaders by a common sentence of acquittal or condemnation. He invested his representatives at Ephesus with ample power and military force. He summoned from either party eight chosen deputies to a free and candid conference in the neighborhood of the capital, far from the contagion of popular frenzy. But the Orientals refused to yield, and the Catholics, proud of their numbers and of their Latin allies, rejected all terms of union or toleration. The patience of the meek Theodosius was provoked, and he dissolved in anger this episcopal tumult, which at the distance of thirteen centuries assumes the venerable aspect of the Third Ecumenical Council. "'God is my witness,' said the pious prince, "'that I am not the author of this confusion. His providence will discern and punish the guilty.' Return to your provinces, and may your private virtues repair the mischief and scandal of your meeting. They returned to their provinces, but the same passions which had distracted the synod of Ephesus were diffused over the eastern world. After three obstinate and equal campaigns, John of Antioch and Kirill of Alexandria condescended to explain and embrace— but their seeming reunion must be imputed rather to prudence than to reason, to the mutual lassitude rather than to the Christian charity of the patriarchs. The Byzantine pontiff had instilled into the royal ear a baleful prejudice against the character and conduct of his Egyptian rival. An epistle of menace and invective, which accompanied the summons, accused him as a busy, insolent, and envious priest, who perplexed the simplicity of the faith, violated the peace of the church and state, and, by his artful and separate addresses to the wife and sister of Theodosius, presumed to suppose or to scatter the seeds of discord in the imperial family. At the stern command of his sovereign, Kirill had repaired to Ephesus, where he was resisted, threatened, and confined by the magistrates in the interests of Nestorius and the Orientals, who assembled the troops of Lydia and Ionia to suppress the fanatic and disorderly train of the patriarch. Without expecting the royal license, he escaped from his guards, precipitately embarked, deserted the imperfect synod, and retired to his episcopal fortress of safety and independence." but his artful emissaries, both in the court and city, successfully labored to appease the resentment and to conciliate the favor of the emperor. The feeble son of Arcadius was alternately swayed by his wife and sister, by the eunuchs and women of the palace. Superstition and avarice were their ruling passions, and the orthodox chiefs were assiduous in their endeavors to alarm the former and to gratify the latter. Constantinople and the suburbs were sanctified with frequent monasteries, and the holy abbots, Dalmatius and Eutyches, had devoted their zeal and fidelity to the cause of Kirill, the worship of Mary, and the unity of Christ. From the first moment of their monastic life they had never mingled with the world or trod the profane ground of the city. But in this awful moment of the danger of the church their vow was superseded by a more sublime and indispensable duty. At the head of a long order of monks and hermits, who carried burning tapers in their hands and chanted litanies to the Mother of God, they proceeded from their monasteries to the palace. 
the people was edified and inflamed by this extraordinary spectacle, and the trembling monarch listened to the prayers and adjurations of the saints, who boldly pronounced that none could hope for salvation unless they embraced the person and the creed of the orthodox successor of Athanasius. At the same time, every avenue of the throne was assaulted with gold. Under the decent names of eulogies and benedictions, the courtiers of both sexes were bribed according to the measures of their power and rapaciousness. But their incessant demands despoiled the sanctuaries of Constantinople and Alexandria, and the authority of the patriarch was unable to silence the just murmur of his clergy that a debt of sixty thousand pounds had already been contracted to support the expense of this scandalous corruption. Pulcheria, who relieved her brother from the weight of an empire, was the firmest pillar of orthodoxy, and so intimate was the alliance between the thunders of the synod and the whispers of the court, that Kirill was assured of success if he could displace one eunuch and substitute another in favor of Theodosius. Yet the Egyptian could not boast of a glorious or decisive victory. The emperor, with unaccustomed firmness, adhered to his promise of protecting the innocence of the oriental bishops, and Kirill softened his anathemas and confessed, with ambiguity and reluctance, a twofold nature of Christ, before he was permitted to satiate his revenge against the unfortunate Nestorius. The rash and obstinate Nestorius, before the end of the synod, was oppressed by Kirill, betrayed by the court, and faintly supported by his eastern friends. A sentiment of fear or indignation prompted him, while it was yet time, to effect the glory of a voluntary abdication. His wish, or at least his request, was readily granted. He was conducted with honor from Ephesus to his old monastery of Antioch, and, after a short pause, his successors, Maximian and Proclus, were acknowledged as the lawful bishops of Constantinople. But in the silence of his cell, the degraded patriarch could no longer resume the innocence and security of a private monk. The past he regretted. He was discontented with the present, and the future he had reason to dread. The Oriental bishops successively disengaged their cause from his unpopular name, and each day decreased the number of the schismatics who revered Nestorius as the confessor of the faith. After a residence at Antioch of four years, the hand of Theodosius subscribed an edict which ranked him with Simon the magician, prescribed his opinions and followers, condemned his writings to the flames, and banished his person first to Petra in Arabia, and at length to Oasis, one of the islands of the Libyan desert. Secluded from the church and from the world, the exile was still pursued by the rage of bigotry and war. A wandering tribe of the Blemis, or Nubians, invaded his solitary prison. In their retreat they dismissed a crowd of useless captives, but no sooner had Nestorius reached the banks of the Nile than he would gladly have escaped from a Roman and Orthodox city to the milder servitude of the savages. His flight was punished as a new crime. The soul of the patriarch inspired the civil and ecclesiastical powers of Egypt— the magistrates, the soldiers, the monks, devoutly tortured the enemy of Christ and St. Kirill, and as far as the confines of Ethiopia, the heretic was alternately dragged and recalled, till his aged body was broken by the hardships and accidents of these reiterated journeys. Yet his mind was still independent and erect. The president of Thebaeus was awed by his pastoral letters. He survived the Catholic tyrant of Alexandria, and, after sixteen years' banishment, the Synod of Chalcedon would perhaps have restored him to the honours, or at least to the communion of the Church. The death of Nestorius prevented his obedience to their welcome summons, and his disease might afford some colour to the scandalous report that his tongue, the organ of blasphemy, had been eaten by the worms. He was buried in a city of Upper Egypt, known by the names of Chemnus, or Panopolis, or Acmim. 
but the immortal malice of the Jacobites has persevered for ages to cast stones against his sepulchre, and to propagate the foolish tradition that it was never watered by the rain of heaven, which equally descends on the righteous and the ungodly. Humanity may drop a tear on the fate of Nestorius, yet justice must observe that he suffered the persecution which he had approved and inflicted. End of chapter 47, part 2